Last Sunday, July 31st, marked the completion of my 38th consecutive year in vocational pastoral ministry. So I've been a pastor than, longer than most of you have been alive. Um, and last weekend, I was blessed with the privilege of preaching at the 150th anniversary of my home church. So First Baptist Church, Long Prairie, Minnesota, was organized, officially registered as a legal entity in 1872. I just still trying to get my head around that. Um, one of our young men said to me last week, wow, for you, that's almost two lifetimes. Just barely, but uh, not that long at all. Um, so on account of these milestones, I have found myself drawing from a fairly deep well of memory, <laughs> recollection of both highs and lows, seasons of sweetness and sorrow, times of fruitfulness and barrenness, things that I relish and things that I regret. Yes, I have regrets. Somebody had asked me that. <laughs> Keith Anderson, who is the uh, former campus pastor at the University of Sioux Falls, writes, We live in what we have built. The stories of our life become a house we inhabit with its limitations, eccentricities, mistakes, hidden meanings, and crafted beauty. That's a, an accurate way of summarizing my thoughts and reflections over the last few weeks. Over the course of a lifetime, we live in what we've built. Our limitations become more clearly defined. Our eccentricities are out there. For everybody to see, you know, everybody's normal to get to know them. Um, our mistakes over time, they're, they're a lot harder to hide. Uh, certain things that didn't make a lot of sense at the time now possess more in the way of meaning. Uh, and there are things about us, gifts and traits that developed and sanctified that, that really have become to sh come to shine. <laughs> More, in a more pronounced way. D Dr. Anderson goes on to say, we are formed by our story. And we are formed as we tell our story to others. And as we learn to read our life as a story with others. That, that really captures kind of the Emmaus Road story. I, I found it to be true. I, I found myself to be formed, obviously, by my story. I'm, I'm still being formed every time I tell my story. Things become clearer. And we are formed as we learn to read together with one another our respective stories. And I believe that Psalm 84 provides a framework for reading the story of our lives. It, it, it helps us to discern meaning. And so, it is with anticipation that I want to invite you, if you're able to stand, to stand 
and uh, follow along. I'm going to read all of Psalm 84. This is God's holy and life-giving word. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield. O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The Lord bless the reading and the hearing and the proclamation of his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we're a people on a quest for happiness, the deepest joys possible. It's our confidence that those joys, that soul satisfaction, that that peace, that contentment that we long for, it's located in you and your word. Your word, O Lord, meditating on your word, hearing your word, digesting your word, contemplating your word, applying your word. That's, that's, that's where we're going to find you. And so, Lord, we're, we're trusting a promise here. Blessed, happy, deeply satisfied are those who trust you and trust the path that you have for us. Trust all that you have promised to be for us in the person of Jesus. We trust you to keep your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. 
the, uh, the, the writer of Psalm 84 is going somewhere. Verse 5, it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 6 says, As they go through the valley of Baca, verse 7, they go from strength to strength. So you get the picture that the psalmist is going. And where he is going is to where God is. Verses 1 and 2, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. So the, the psalmist is, is going somewhere, and where he's going is to where God is. And, and he's not necessarily talking about going to where God is ultimately, like heaven, uh, though he does use the vocabulary of temple worship, such as the courts of the Lord, or God's altars, God's house, or appearing before God in Zion. I, I don't believe he is necessarily limiting himself to going to where God is in some particular sense, like going to church or going to a worship service. Rather, the writer is going to where God is throughout all of life. That is, all of life is an opportunity to go to where God is. And he passes through valleys and Deserts, he enjoys places where there are springs and pools. He encounters times of weakness and times of strength. He experiences both pain and comfort, as well as times of joy and times when his dependence on God is severely tested. But the governing direction is always God and God's presence. God is the destination. Going and God. Going and God. Loved ones, Psalm 84 helps us to understand that our hearts are not at home until our hearts find their home in God. Our hearts are not at home until our hearts find their hope in God through Christ. I, I believe that's the plot line of Psalm 84, and it's the plot line of all Scripture. Our hearts are not at home until our hearts find their home in God through Christ. And, and it's the plot line, it's that plot line that helps us make sense of our respective stories. It's the plot line that helps us make sense of, of who we are and how we have come to be who we are, helps us make sense of this house that we have built. I, I was 10 years old. It was um, a beautiful summer day, and I went out into our backyard, and I found my mom lying on the ground under the clothesline, and she was having a heart attack. And she whispered to me that I needed to go get the neighbors, and I cried. I, I remember that was unsettling, and I, I prayed the very first sincere prayer I'd ever prayed. I mean, my, I prayed the now I lay me down to sleep, you know, prayer, which was really lame to me. But this one 
was legit and sincere. And I prayed, oh God, oh God, oh God, don't let my mom die. And, um, and God answered my prayer. My mother did not die. And that left an impression on me. I also remember that we were cared for uh, during those anxious days by the pastor and the people of our church. And that left an impression on me. But mostly I remember how it all made me thoughtful with regard to eternal matters. It struck me really for the first time that, that people really die. And then what? You know, th that weighed on me. At what point did you begin to take seriously the possibility that there might be something after this life? And what was it that provoked your thinking? Or have you ever even taken the matter of eternity seriously? After my mother's first heart attack, I remember that my dad, who... Um, that point in time showed no signs of being a man of faith, insisted that we go to church on Sundays. And uh, I, I don't remember a thing. <laughs> I don't remember a thing about what was preached. Um, but I do remember that I really liked sitting close to my dad. Uh, he felt present to me, for me, in that place. And I loved hearing my mom sing the alto line on the songs. And I remember going to Sunday school, and I remember there was this older couple who taught the fifth and sixth grade class. Well, at least they were older than my parents. Um, and I remember that they were very kind and that they smiled a lot. And they, I always felt like they really cared and that they cared specifically for me. And that was meaningful because I was terribly shy and terribly uncomfortable in my own skin, and their kindness was calming. And that left an impression on me. When you were 10, or 11, or 12, did you feel yourself to be loved, and cared for? Perhaps you knew yourself to be loved and cared for, but did you feel yourself to be loved? And who noticed you? And who cared? In seventh grade, I was, I was really into music. And um, I was just learning how to play the drums and the guitar. And I discovered that I could sing. And my dad bought me this really old electric guitar for five bucks. And it had this, this, the most grungy sound. And I loved it. And, and someone from our church discovered that, well, they found out that I sang and played a little guitar, <laughs> and, and it, it's kind of amazing to think about it right now, but, but I was invited as a seventh grader to sing at the Wednesday night prayer meeting in our church, and I mean, I could barely play three chords, and, uh, but my mom found this old songbook with guitar chord charts, and there was one song, only one song in the whole book that I recognized and that had chords that I could actually play. And that was the old gospel song, Softly and Tenderly. So into this prayer meeting, I come with my amp and my $5 guitar. And in front of this group of adults, 
I go <laughs> softly and tenderly. <laughs> Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling to <laughs> me. The incongruence, you know, of the lyrics of that song and the sound of that guitar is just painful. Comical now, but oh my. But, but you know, here's, here's what stayed with me. Nobody, nobody has ever said a negative thing to me. <laughs> I don't know if our pastor, he, he probably took a whole bunch of backlash for it, but he never said anything. And who knows, he may have dished out a bunch of backlash to whoever it was that invited me to do the singing. But having now been a pastor for like, you know, almost 150 years, I have heard a few thousand complaints. And, and to think back, to think back on those generous-hearted, long-suffering saints, they never said a disparaging thing to me. It's, it is unreal. And that leaves an impression on me. <laughs> it left a huge impression on me. Do you, do you remember when you began to give serious thought to eternal things? As you were turning over the puzzle pieces of gospel truth, did you have patient, generous-hearted people nudging you to Jesus. In ninth grade, I went with a busload of teenagers to Dallas, Texas. It was this Jesus festival. It was called Explo 72. They just, they just kind of had a 50-year anniversary of the event. I, I read about it recently. I, I would never have thought to go to something like this. Except it was... My high school track coach, uh, who was also a member of our church, he was leading the trip. And uh, he, I, he put the full court press on me to go. I mean, dogged me. He was relentless, would not take no for an answer. And so eventually I caved in and I, okay, I'll go to this thing. And um, I mean, I trying to imagine hours and hours on a bus to Texas. But uh, I went... Explo 72 was kind of a, you know, a Christian Woodstock. Big stadium, rock music. It was hot and sweaty. It was awesome at that point. Um, but then they made us go door to door and share the four spiritual laws of strangers. It, it was an introvert's Worst nightmare. Um, that and the fact that I had not experienced spiritual rebirth myself made this door-to-door -door thing. It, it was the worst experience of my life. Um, but something was happening in me. I was affected. I was being affected. Um, at least I was affected enough to feel like some things need to change. But I was not affected enough to really take hold of Jesus. 
But it was that same year that the Jesus movement, the spiritual awakening of the 70s, it just it rolled into our, our little town, hit Long Prairie in Little Falls, Minnesota. Up, up to then, uh, my only spiritual concern was not going to hell and not being left behind. Those things worried me deeply. But as soon as I soon came to realize, you do not need to experience new birth to be afraid of hell. You do not need to be made new to be afraid of being left behind. But you do need to experience new birth to love and long for Jesus. You do need your heart to be made new to hunger and to thirst for the kind of joy and spiritual nourishment you can only get in God's Word. You do need to be made born again. You need to be born again before you will bow down and say, O Lord of hosts, you are my King and my God. And so when I saw friends (laughs) repenting of sins, and mind you, these were sins that from my vantage point, were way, 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 way worse than my sins, and they were falling in love with Jesus, it it provoked me. And I realized that that my spirituality was really nothing but vain, self-righteous moralism. I was a nice kid going to hell. And it unsettled me. But my heart was coming alive in that coming alive to God. And I began to experience an appetite for this book. I began on my own, not prompted, to read it every night before I went to bed. As Psalm 1 um, says, I was becoming a happy man. (laughs) I, I went to church on Sunday morning and open the word. I went to Bible study with my, tra- the, my track coach led on Sunday night and opened the word. I went to a Bible study that our pastor led on Wednesday mornings before school started. It, it was called release time. This is going to come as a total shock to some of you. But in those days, the public school used to delay the start of the day on Wednesday mornings so that students could gather at their churches for a time in God's word. And through it all, my heart was being drawn somewhere. (laughs) Like the composer of Psalm 84, my desires were going to where God is. Psalm 84, 1 and 2 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And loved ones, listen, the reason that so many of us in those days felt this gravitational pull toward God is because our hearts are not at home until our hearts find their home in God, through Christ. Our hearts are not happy until they're happy in the Lord. Blaise Pascal, Ryan referred to 
the French mathematician philosopher who said that all men seek happiness is without exception. Here's something else that Pascal wrote. He said, there once was in man a true happiness of which now remains to him only the empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Everyone seeks happiness. And that longing that we all feel for enduring joy in itself is not an immoral thing. That hunger, friends, that hunger was placed in us by God himself. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He, that is, God has put eternity into man's heart. And that's the reason why our hearts are not at home until our hearts find their home in God. So by the spring of my senior year in high school, my heart had finally found home. It's home. In God, through Christ. And I was baptized on Easter Sunday night, May 14th, 1974. Long before a lot of you were born. Is there anyone here today whose heart is still restless? Have you found the home that your heart is longing for? that it was made for? Psalm 84 verse 5 says, Blessed, happy are those in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Verse 10, For, or because, to them, to them, those happy hearts, to them a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Understanding that our hearts are not at home until our hearts find their home and God helps us. It helps us to put the hard parts of our story in perspective. It helps us so that we can steward our pain. The pain of those painful things. Verses 5 through 8, the psalmist writes... Blessed are those whose strength is in you. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. The valley of Baca, that means valley of tears or valley of weeping. And since it is tears that make this valley into a place of springs, we understand it's probably a dry place. It's a barren desert place. And notice it, it doesn't say if they go through the valley of Baca or 
in the event they happen to go through the valley of Baca. <laughs> no, it says, as they go through the valley of Baca. Tears and weeping will come. Pain will eventually and inevitably touch our lives. For some more than others. But when our orientation is pursuing the joy of God's presence in all of life, then we're less likely to waste our pain. That's because our valley of weeping is simply another access point to deeper experience of the presence of God. I have a sister. Her name is Jan. She's eight years older than me. She was the firstborn in our family. After Jan was born, my mother was pregnant, went full term, only to give birth to a stillborn daughter. Now, some of you have experienced firsthand, uh, you know, the pain of that, how unsettling that is. I, I, I knew about it later, but didn't really have categories for it until I, I became a pastor, walked through that experience with people. After that, my mother became pregnant again and went full term and gave birth to a son, gave him a name. His name was Michael, and um, Michael lived for two days and then died of sudden infant death syndrome, that's what they think. So, so I knew that was part of our family story. Um, what I did not know until, like, this is like years after I had become a pastor, um, I was told that... Um, in her grief, my mother prayed a Hannah-like prayer. She prayed, God, if you'll give me a son, I'd dedicate him to you and to your service. And that's when I came along. So for my mother, the Valley of Baca became another place and occasion to access, access the Lord of hosts. And to pray. And to draw near. Her story and the, and the darkest, the darkest chapters of your story only make sense when we remember that the greatest pain in the universe was suffered by Jesus as he endured God's wrath for our sins. And that suffering, that suffering, that was the only way, that was the necessary way for us to appear before God holy and accepted by God in Zion. And so, loved ones, what, what griefs do you still carry with you? What griefs do you still need to embrace as an occasion to draw nearer to God, perhaps, than you've ever drawn near to Him before? What, what pains mark your story that God means for you to to find your strength and your help and your hope in Him. Psalm 84 is what is uh, referred to by Old Testament scholars as a communal psalm. That means it would have been sung by the people of God um, as they drew near together to the presence of God. 
And in our English Bibles, there's this little title or heading um, over it that says, the composition of this psalm is attributed to the sons of Korah. Now, the story of Korah is one of those, it's one of those painful ones. God had called and anointed Moses as the leader over the people of Israel. Uh, but there's this fellow Korah. <laughs> he was a, a chronic pain in Moses' neck. He opposed Moses. He criticized Moses. He grumbled privately about Moses. He complained publicly about Moses. And when God had completed the work that he wanted to do in Moses through this, the pain caused by Korah, God said, okay, my purpose in and through and for you, it's done. And according to number 16, the ground opened up and swallowed Korah. Korah was not ever seen or heard from again. And that's another one of those things that would leave an impression on you. God revealed his power and his presence and justice. And he poured out his wrath on a, a grumbler in a tangible way for all to see and no one to ever forget. But what is intended to be even more unforgettable is that God also made his power and his presence manifest by showing unspeakable mercy by saving the sons of Korah from his wrath. And so, through the generations, every time God's people would gather to seek God's presence together, they would sing together communal psalms such as Psalm 84. And when they sang this particular psalm, and they, they'd see that heading, a psalm of the sons of Korah, it was a reminder of how God had saved those who had written this psalm from his wrath. Loved ones, God saved the sons of Korah from his wrath. A mediator stood between them and God's wrath. And every time the people, generations to come, would sing the psalm, they would see that name, the sons of Korah. Yes, yes. And they would be reminded how God had removed their shame and had purchased their access into his lovely and most desirable dwelling place. And they, would, they could sing together how the Lord God is a sun and a shield. And they would sing how the Lord bestows favor and honor. And they'd come to that line in verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. As you, O oh God, hear our songs, as you hear our prayers, as we cry out to you, we know we have a shield. We know we have a mediator. Behold our shield. Look at him. Look on the face of your anointed. The anointed. The Christ. Our sins are on our shield. Our shame is on our anointed. And because of that, now all we know is favor and honor. And they would be affected by God's grace and mercy again and again and again and again. And that gospel truth brought them 
brought him all the way home into the presence of God. And that same gospel brings us all the way home. Just as the gospel of a mediator, a shield, who is the Christ, was how God drew the first singers of this psalm into gospel community. And every generation after that, it is the same gospel that draws us together into community. The same mediator who saved the sons of Korah was the mediator of every generation. He's our mediator. It's the Lord Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ. And by faith in his sin-atoning death on the cross, he can and he will bring you all the way home. He is the Savior by whom and through whom our hearts find their home in God. So friends, the, the reality of participation in this gospel-begotten church, this gospel community, is a heart and soul-sustaining gift for us, no matter how confusing our suffering, no matter how wearying our desert, no matter how earth-shaking the shifts in our culture have become. No good thing do you, O oh God, withhold from those who are joined by faith to your anointed one. O oh Lord of hosts, blessed, happy is the one who trusts in you. Let's pray together. Thankful again, O oh Lord, that you are our rock and our redeemer. Thank you again. We, we pause and are, are mindful of all that you have done to draw us to yourself, to bring us, to bring our hearts to a place of joy, contentment, and fullness. Pray that you would renew our faith today. That you would strengthen our faith through the promises of your word. Through the reality of a crucified, buried, and risen, and ascended Savior. We thank you for our shield. We're thankful for your anointed one. We praise you, Lord, for giving us a great Savior. We praise you for giving us such a great salvation. 